we're looking at Jacob's life and this story in chapter 29, it, it's not a love story. Uh, Jacob's love for Rachel is emphasized and I don't question it, but it's not like we hold this up as instructive you know, to young men. You know, here, here is how you need to love uh, a, a woman. Uh, we can draw morals from these stories. I've been saying that. But what these stories are really about is, is how the grace of God works through everything. And I mean everything. As I've said for two Sundays now, uh, Jacob is not a high character guy. And I, I think a few people are, are, are hearing me uh, belittling him uh, when I say that. I'm not belittling him. I just don't consider him a hero of the faith uh, particularly. I don't think anybody does in Scripture. Nor are we excusing him as if to say, uh, you know, well, the grace of God uh, infusing this guy's life means we just overlook all of his, his faults and flaws, that it's immaterial. No, it's not immaterial. In fact, when we get over into the New Testament, we find that grace does morally form us. The book of Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us. He says grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace trains us, teaches us to be godly. But the formative aspect of grace doing that, this is not the focus in Jacob's story. Nobody in these stories is an example to follow. Grace does make straight boards out of crooked timber, as the old saying goes. But coming from Romans, as we have the last year and a half in Romans, we, we know that God's grace doesn't send us out looking for crooked timber. We see sin in these stories, and we see grace for sin, but sin is, is not a friend whereby we come to appreciate the gospel more. Yeah, the more adulterous I am, the more profane I am, the more exploitive I can be, the more I'll appreciate God's grace. What's more likely to happen is you'll fall in love with your sin and you'll go to excusing in yourself and others a dozen things that ought not to be. I was reading a, a review of the new uh, Joker movie coming out uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, now some film nerds have just gotten really interested in this sermon. Uh, how do you know the difference between a film nerd and the rest of us? We call them movies. They call them films. You want to go see a film tonight? Uh, you mean a movie? Uh, that's what you're talking about. The author in this article compared what we know of uh, Phoenix's portrayal with the late Heath Ledger's from a decade past. Now, granted, we haven't seen the movie yet, uh, this newest installment of the Batman stories, this one that focuses on the, the Joker, but it, it does seem that, that Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal will at least be on par with the late Heath Ledger's, uh, given what trailers and insider reports are saying. And, and Heath Ledger's portrayal was something of a cultural phenomenon. The writer of this article remembered how startling it was for her, sitting in a theater a little over a decade ago, when Ledger's Joker blew up a hospital and everybody in the theater was laughing. She says, one of those moments where you sort of dial into how we really are, and she said, you know, even a cinematic portrayal, I mean, you go to these movies where everything's getting smashed up and all, but, but the way that, was, that, that scene was played, it was, it was horrific to, to watch that. And she said, 
that the joker, then and now, clearly a, a homicidal nihilist, he gets portrayed in these particular movies in such a way that the audience is supposed to feel some sympathy for him. Like, you know, maybe we, society, we've made him that way, and so we bear the shame of his vengeance. Here's what she wrote. We need stories that depict evil, and we need skilled actors to portray wicked characters. What we don't need is storytelling that makes the evil in it empathetic, heroic, or so fascinating that it subverts goodness. When we applaud characters like the Joker who are wholly evil, we send the message that evil maybe isn't evil, it's just different. That line, evil maybe isn't evil, it's just different. I I was just saying sin is not a friend whereby we come to appreciate grace more. Take polygamy on display here in our story. Polygamy isn't different, it's evil. Maybe not a blow-up hospital kind of evil, but every time we find polygamy in Scripture, we always find rivalry and or idolatry in its wake. Polygamy wasn't a a divine calling whereby the the 12 tribes of Israel are, are generated from it. In fact, when you get to the end of Genesis, we'll see this in a few weeks, we'll get to the end of Joseph's story, and he's talking to his brothers, and you know the verse, chapter 50, verse 20, where he says, you know, what you meant for, uh, for me an uh, evil, God meant it for good. And by the same token, I mean, that's really kind of the story of, of Genesis in that, in that line. You know, what Laban means for evil, God God turns some good out of it, doesn't make the the evil itself less so. Evil is the corruption of something good. Consider back to the Garden of Eden. God gave one woman to one man, and that was to be the pattern. But east of Eden, where everybody in Genesis is heading, (laughs) the pattern is violated. Laban victimizes both of his daughters here in and setting them against one another, pitting them for, for lifelong rivalry. And so I call this sermon, if you wondered why the sermon is called East of Eden, we didn't read this, but if you notice verse 1, if your Bible's open or you scroll up electronically to chapter 29, verse 1, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the East. Now that's significant. Let me show you just for a moment here why so. Flip back to chapter 25, verse 6. I don't often ask you to cross-reference. Chapter 25, verse 6. It says, to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Go back further, chapter 13 of Genesis. Chapter 13, verse 11. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from one another, he and and Abram. If you go back to the end of chapter 3, you find that the expulsion from Eden is to the east. Now, what's significant about that? It also tells a story. Ever since Genesis 3, the fall, people have been moving eastward. It's a little through line. It's a little clue of where we are. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We're in the fallen world. 
We speak in this country of westward expansion as Americans, and we're referring to the, the phenomenon in the 19th century, migration from this side of the Mississippi, about as close to this side of the Mississippi as you can get, uh, all the way out to um, the west and the, and the Pacific coast. But in terms of Genesis, everyone is moving eastern, eastward, which is not just a directional marker of expulsion from Eden. It's the story of life outside of Eden. Sodom is to the east. Laban is to the east. But also the blessing of God. His grace, amazing. It also moves in an eastward direction. Remember last week's passage where the dream and God says to him, Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you all the offsprings, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now with this in mind, it's kind of a backdrop Let's get into this story here as we have it in chapter 29. You've probably already noted, you know the story, a lot of you, you've already noted the poetic justice. The deceiver gets deceived. We think back, chapter 27, where we started two weeks ago in this narrative of Jacob. We think back to how Jacob took advantage of his father Isaac's poor eyesight and he put goat skin on his arms and his neck, his mother complicit with this, to make his father think he was Esau. Now here in chapter 29, Jacob, going on feel, not sight, thinks he's with Rachel. But in the morning, verse 25, behold, it was Leah. And as the verse goes on, looking now at verse 25 here in chapter 29, verse 25, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Put another way, I won't let happen to me what happened to your father. There's the atmosphere in this of serves you right. You're getting exactly what you should have coming to you. And I'm going to be the judge and the jury and the executioner as it was. Even though he's giving them, Jacob, his, his daughters. I don't know if you've heard of the Midrash. Have you heard of the Midrash? It's a compilation of old rabbinic interpretations of Genesis and other books. And, and we, we sometimes uh, consult uh, the Midrash because it's interesting in, in our study. Because um, the rabbis of old put themselves uh, in, in the story and, and try to ascertain what's, what's going on. And this particular midrash in my study this week I encountered was one where a rabbi imagined the morning after conversation like this, that Jacob says to Leah, I called out Rachel all night and you answered me, but it's you, daughter of a deceiver. And Leah says in response, like how your father called Esau and you answered him. Again, that's a rabbinical interpretation, but I think that rabbi is close to the spirit of what's going on. Now, looking at this story, what should our takeaways be? Let's go with two from this story in service to why we need grace. First, because our idolatries are entirely intoxicating. And second, because our envies, envy, 
Envies, plural, our envies are entirely consuming. We need the grace of God to infuse our lives because, first, our idolatries are entirely intoxicating, and second, our envies are entirely consuming. This is what living east of Eden is like. We seek not just our satisfaction, but our salvation even from that which we think we must have. So first, we need grace because our idolatries are entirely intoxicating, taking nothing away from Jacob's love for Rachel. The text is emphatic, he did. But we know the nature of sin is to love the right things the wrong ways. And that's at the heart of every idolatry of our hearts. Jacob made an idol, not just of Rachel, but also the sexual experience that would be his with her. What does the text tell us about Rachel? Look back in verse 17. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and it's contrastive because we had a description of Leah in the first part of verse 17, that Leah's only physical asset was her eyes. Now, I know this Hebrew word gets translated weak, weak eyes in most of our translations, and this makes us think that, that Leah was somehow unattractive. The word is probably better rendered soft. It's the antonym of hard. And so she had soft eyes. So it's not that Leah was unattractive. It's that she wasn't her sister. Her sister was praised and, and, and thought very highly of because of her beauty. And it wasn't that Leah was unattractive. It's that Leah just had this, this, one, this one feature that was attractive. This is not a love story in the sense that we are to commend to young men the kind of love Jacob felt for Rachel. Verse 20, he served seven years for her, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Sure, there's beauty in that. But there's also disorder overall, all through this story. And it's not just in the polygamy and the resulting heartache and rivalry on through chapter 30. The love story that's here is how we can love something in such a way that it becomes an idol. And the way that happens is that when we give something absolute value, Frederick uh, Beekner, a preacher and writer, lives in New England. He's now in his 90s, uh, Beekner is, still writing. And this is how he talks about idolatry. Listen to his words. Idolatry is the practice of ascribing absolute value to things of relative worth. Under certain circumstances, money, patriotism, sexual freedom, moral principles even, family loyalty even, physical beauty, social or intellectual preeminence, and so on are fine things to have around. But to make them the standard by which all other values are measured, to make them your masters, to look to them to justify your life and save your soul is the sheerest folly because they are just not up to it. I have to have this. I have to have that. I have to have this person. I have to have that thing 
to feel good about my life. I have to have this or that to feel like I have a life. It's the have to have it that turns it into idolatry. The forms of idolatry have changed through the centuries, but not the nature of it. It may be that you really want a relationship and and you pursue one, and that's good, but if you have to have it, then that relationship may very well become an idol of the heart when it takes on an importance it just cannot live up to if you invest it with all of your security and the highest values. You may seek inclusion in some group, acceptance in some crowd. Fine, accept or until you have to have their approval and you will do anything for it then inclusion in the group has become idolatrous. And you can plug into this equation possessions, experiences, people, places, things. We can make an idol out of anything and everything when we have to have it. And in having to have it, we tie ourselves to whatever that is in such a way as to say, this is what validates me. This is what completes me. And we go to work for our idols. Boy, do we. We work to get the attention of someone. We work to get included. We work to get to a place of stability, a place of security where where we're in control of things from here on. For Jacob, it was seven years of of work. But they, they passed so breezily for him because he was so intoxicated by the object of his affection. And then, verse 21, Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Do you see the I have to have it blaring out from this? It's idolatry of the heart. So much so that somehow, throughout the whole night of having what he'd worked so hard for, he never realizes it's not her. And people try to explain this. Was he intoxicated by the feasting mentioned in the text? Did Leah have a veil on or did she insist the tent be dark? We don't know. All the text gives us, the direction the text points us in, is that Jacob is so hyper aware of what he had to have that he was unaware he actually didn't have it. In verse 25, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. If you make anything in this life the standard by which all your value is measured, even good things, you make them your masters, the pursuit of them your passions, every resulting disappointment, every resulting dissatisfaction you encounter in this thing you had to have, you won't know how to handle it if it's, if it's an idol except to despair over it. I got totally caught up in having the perfect girlfriend or the perfect boyfriend or the perfect family. I got totally caught up in having the most satisfying career with all the toys. I got totally caught up in the dream house. I wanted this and I, and I got it. And then it hasn't always been what I thought it would be or it's turned on me or it's become the source of my deepest disappointment. 
Let's put this with our second consideration now. We need grace not just because our idolatries are entirely intoxicating, but also because our envies are entirely consuming. As the narrative continues, we read some of it. The narrative is of Leah bearing children, which was the way in this culture that uh, the women proved their worth to their husbands. I recognize how that sounds to modern ears. But childbearing was, was everything culturally back then if you were a woman. Reflected in what Rachel says, chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Here's the damage again from polygamy, the rivalry between these sisters foisted upon them by their father, which in the next chapter they'll actually add to by giving their servants to Jacob as two more wives in the contest for more children between the sisters. That's a pathology for another sermon. Rivalry and or idolatry always accompany polygamy. But these idolatries of the heart, so you say, well, polygamy, that's really foreign to me. Yeah, but idolatries of the heart is not. And these idolatries of the heart that, that we have in this story and in ourselves, that's what they begat. That's the children of idolatry of the heart. It's envy. They begat all these envies of all kinds. And envy is ultimately self-consuming. It, it, I, I, I enter me, I enter myself into a kind of rivalry where I not only want what you have, I despise you for having it. Probably most of us are familiar with the social media phenomenon of hate liking someone's posts or pictures. I know you don't do it, but just listen to this for the benefit of someone else. What you posted actually fills me with jealousy, at least, envy at worst, but I'll go on record as liking it, though... I don't really because I wish that was me, not you. Our idolatries intoxicate us, but our envies consume us. I've known people who've gotten off social media just for this reason, because honesty with themselves, they had to admit, you know, I'm too comparative. And I'm having to combat a lot of envy in my heart. And, and this is just not helping me. So they get off it for a while and to work on that. Or they, or they mute certain accounts that are just always this steady stream of everything is awesome. And we know it's not. We know it's not. We know everyone has problems and non-Instagrammable moments. But envy says to us, no, everything is perfect and settled and awesome for everyone else. And it must be for you too. It must be for me. In fact, envy takes that a step further. It shouldn't be great for them if it isn't for me. And this will consume you. Give me children, she says, or I die. Nothing wrong with her desire for children. There's so much that's right about her desire, but it was consuming Rachel. Already in a difficult situation, she and Leah, your heart goes out to them at one level. Rachel watches her sister succeeding where she isn't. She had Jacob's love, but Leah was having his children. And back then, the cultural rewards all accrued on the side, not of being loved, but of being fertile. It's the way it was. 
Now, right here is where you probably expect me to tell you how grace fixes all this. God gives us grace so that we won't be idolatrous or envious. I'm not going to put it that way. What I'm going to say instead is this. God gives us grace because we remain idolatrous and envious of heart. Grace itself doesn't fix anything. Being a grace recipient doesn't make you a better person, voila. Jacob is exhibit A. What grace does, and we're going to see this particularly next week in the scenario of his wrestling match with God. What grace does is creates in us the desire ongoing for God. Grace received opens us up to God cutting in on us in order to cut out of us whatever works against his goodness to us. And his cutting out of us, it can hurt. By the end of next week's scenario, Jacob is going to be walking with a limp. Being a grace recipient, God's grace means even though I am idolatrous of heart and envious, I keep seeking God because I know He's gracious to me. I know He's gracious with me. I know He's gracious for me. Even when things aren't Instagrammable, I still want Him in the picture. I want Him to deal with my idolatries and my envies and the rest of it in and from me. We are saved by grace. We are justified by grace. There's a theology to grace. There are doctrines of grace. But living east of Eden, as we all do, God lavishes His grace on us for a lot of reasons, including what we do to ourselves in our idolatries of heart, in our consuming envies. He doesn't fix us, as it were, by, by dumping grace on us, as if He walked up behind you with a bucket and What he does in grace is he calls us to to fix our desires on him. That our seeking of him and our pursuit of him becomes the the highest calling of our our lives and and where we source our, our deepest satisfaction. The gospel, according to Jacob, is that even with all of our idolatries, all of our envies, God is still for us. And that's good news. Because in being gracious to us, in blessing us in Christ, do you realize who Jesus is? Jacob's descendant through Leah, the unloved one. You get Jesus' forefather here in the text, verse 35. She conceived again and bore a son, verse 35, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Judah is the tribe Jesus is from. Leah, the unloved one, his great, 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 great grandmother. In being gracious with us, blessing us in Christ, God takes us as is, knowing how intoxicating we will continue to find our idolatries, knowing how easily consumed we are with our envies. And what he says to us in grace is is not that I'm interested now in fixing you. Yes, again, grace morally forms us, and we see that all through the New Testament. But it's, it's not that he's interested in fixing us as much as he's interested in getting us crucified with Christ so that it, it's not any longer I, me, myself, on my own, calling the shots and, and living for me, but Christ in me, calling me 
over and away from my idolatries and my envies, over the course of my life, day by day, in everything I like and everything I don't like and, and even things I'm indifferent to, fix on me, Jesus says. Keep seeking me, Leah's exponentially great-grandson says. Keep looking to me, this one who was Lord of Jacob says. Grace is a compass. No matter how eastward we go, the gospel moves eastward too. And from that location, it always points us back home. Would you stand with me? I'll pray, we'll sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we could go all kinds of directions with these stories. We could talk about all kinds of issues of the heart, mind, soul, and strength. In this direction we've gone today, we've, um, we've seen a lot of ourselves. Though our circumstances are different, the details change. But we know what it is to be consumed by envy. We know what it is to have idolatries of the heart. And Father, I pray for myself as well as all of us, you would expose them. And even if we have to walk with a limp afterwards, that it is because grace wounds us in the best way. The proverb talks about a wounding from a friend is something trustworthy. And you're the ultimate friend. And so Lord, we, we look at these stories and we, we see in this Old Testament figure uh, not a hero, but someone who needed grace and didn't earn it and couldn't sustain it himself. It continued to be lavished on him, but we also see, and we'll see it next week in the wrestling match, his ardent desire to be blessed by you. And that's hopeful. And we thank you, Lord, for the work you did in him and the work you're doing in us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would, you would stay our hearts on you. We'll walk out of this door. In fact, we don't even have to walk out of the door. We've already, half of us, been completely distracted this morning by everything that's coming this week. We find it hard to even give an hour away from everything else that is always trying to get our attention. Father, help us in this. Break through all these facades and all these things that rivet our attention and show us again and again how good you are, how glorious will be your, your glory when we behold that with, with eyes that can take it in. Father, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for walking with us. Thank you for caring for us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.